You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. When terrible things happen in our society today, either disasters that impact many or tragedies that impact just a few, people often respond with this exasperated, anguished cry. Why do bad things happen to good people? You've heard this before, right? And if you spent any time reading your Bible or in a church that teaches the Bible, when you hear that, the first thing that probably pops into your mind is this. There aren't any good people. Because the Apostle Paul says this in Romans 3. It is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There are no good people. So that question operates from a false theological premise. Why do bad things happen to good people? And I think that believers in Christ generally grasp this truth. And yet, when hard times befall us, we often wind up asking basically the very same question, although we probably phrase it a little differently. We ask, why do bad things happen to God's people? And yet, I think when we ask that question, we are also operating from a false theological premise. You know, the Bible plainly teaches us that God is all-loving and all-good and all-kind and all-gracious, and He is all-powerful. He can do whatever He wants. And the Bible also teaches that everyone who repentantly trusts in Jesus Christ, in His deity and death and resurrection, now belongs to God. Our sins are forgiven. We are indwelt by His Spirit. We have become a part of His family. As Paul says in Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's all true. And yet our mind often puts these truths together like this. Well, if God is so good and kind, and if God is for me, and if God can do anything, that means that I should expect that God is always going to give me good outcomes in this life, and that He is going to shield me from ever having any bad outcomes. And many, many people today think like that. And then when they encounter hardship, they get terribly confused. They start to wonder, well, maybe God isn't really so good or kind. Or maybe God doesn't see what's going on with me. Or maybe He just doesn't care. Or maybe God really isn't all-powerful. Maybe there are some bad things that even God can't protect me from. Or maybe they conclude, I'm suffering because God isn't really there after all. I've seen many, many people who profess Christ and encounter hardship, and they wind up coming up with one of these answers because they just couldn't deal with the idea that bad things could happen to them. They thought that being a Christian was a guarantee of a good, pain-free life. But you know, in Romans 8, right after Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He says this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That doesn't sound much like prosperity theology, does it? 
believers may be exposed to hardship, want, danger, and even murder. And down through the ages, that has happened to many, many believers. Because sometimes, and quite often, bad things do happen to God's people. And friends, that's not a bug in the system. That's not something abnormal. So encountering bad things is not something that should shock us or destroy our faith. Because as we're going to see today, bad things are something that we should expect. Because hardship is something that God uses to bring about His good purposes in the lives of His people. You know, many of us love that, that beautiful verse in Romans 8 about God working all things out for good for those who are the called according to His purpose. But the very next verse tells us what God's purpose is. It is to conform us to the image of His Son. That's not a promise that everything in our life is going to come up sunshine and rainbows. It is a promise that in the end God will work out everything that we experience, even the bad things in our sanctification. He will draw us more and more uh, towards Christ and make us more and more like Christ. Friends, there is no guarantee of prosperity theology. Hardship is something we must deal with, and that's what we're going to see today as we continue our study in the gospel according to Matthew. Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 33. And here we're going to see that God often sends His people into hardship. And we're going to see how He means for us to navigate that hardship today. Now this morning I've got five points. I'm not going to list them out all up front, but if you really want to see what they are, you can read the bulletin. But I want to instead jump immediately into our first point, which is that Jesus sometimes sends his people into the storm of hardship. And if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Matthew 14. And as you're turning there, let me remind you what's going on in this book. Jesus and his disciples have been ministering throughout Galilee, and they're exhausted. And beyond being exhausted, they have begun to catch the attention of Herod Antipas, Rome's puppet king who rules over Galilee. But it's not yet time for Jesus to run afoul of the Romans. And so Jesus decides it's time for a change of scenery. He gets his disciples into a boat, and they leave Capernaum, which up to this point has been the center of their activity in Galilee, and they head east across the Sea of Galilee towards Bethsaida. But as they make this trip by boat, the people of, of Galilee that Jesus has been ministering to become aware that Jesus is leaving their area. Now, these folks are unbelievers. Matthew told us back in chapter 11, they would not respond to Jesus' call to repent. But they still want access to his miracles, his supernatural power. So in large numbers, these people start to be, they begin to follow Jesus' boat, but they're following along uh, by foot on the shoreline, trying to see where Jesus is going, and they're running as a big crowd from town to town. And as this crowd goes through these towns, the crowd gets bigger and bigger until it winds up being like somewhere between five and 20,000 people following Jesus. And we saw last week then when Jesus' boat landed near Bethsaida, this huge crowd was standing there waiting for him. And even though Jesus and his disciples were exhausted, and even though this crowd was full of unbelievers, Jesus still had great compassion on them. He didn't just send them away. No, he spent hours healing all the people who were there. And then he performed an even greater miracle. He took five small barley loaves and two little fish into his hands. And from them, Jesus miraculously fed the whole crowd. It was a miracle of creation. 
And Jesus created so much food that there were 12 baskets full of leftovers. Now this morning we begin immediately after Jesus has fed this huge crowd. Verse 22. Immediately he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. I want you to notice two things here. First, Jesus' action is immediate. Once the miraculous meal has ended and the scraps have been gathered up, he gets the disciples into the boat. And second, this word made in Greek is actually a very strong verb. It's like Jesus compelled the disciples into the boat. He forced them into the boat and across the sea. Why? Why all of this forcefulness and haste? Well, Matthew doesn't tell us, but I think John does. In John 6.14, we read this. When the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, this miracle, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. See, this unbelieving crowd perceives Jesus has worked an amazing miracle. Maybe Jesus is the Messiah. Now, at first, we might think this is great news. The crowds have finally figured it out. After all, for something like 10 chapters, Jesus has been performing all of these miracles the Old Testament says the Messiah would perform. And now the crowds get it. Or do they? You know, what the crowds are thinking is this. Somebody that can make us a bunch of food, that's somebody that we would like to be our king. So they want to have a big mob and go down to Jerusalem and install Jesus as king by force. What they're offering Jesus is this. Jesus, you can have a crown and a kingdom without suffering, without the cross. You know, this has been offered to Jesus once before, back in chapter 4, verse 8. The devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. See, the prospect of a crossless crown is not something the Father offered Jesus. This was not God's plan. Rather, this is a satanic proposal. And so when these unbelieving crowds offer this same thing to Jesus, we must understand their response here is not a good response. It is a satanic response. They are offering Jesus another temptation. But Jesus knows that God's kingdom cannot come in this way. And Jesus doesn't want his disciples to be stumbled into this temptation, to become part of this crazy revolutionary idea. So he gets them out of there right away so that they won't fall into this. And then after sending the disciples away, Jesus sends the crowd away too. And for at least a few hours, he has some peace. But these two departures, the departure of the crowd and the departure of the disciples, could not be more unlike one another. Think about it. The unbelievers in this crowd have had a great day. They had the excitement of chasing Jesus around and the relief of enjoying his miracles and the amazement of seeing Jesus create food out of nothing and the satisfaction of a huge meal. And now they get to go home to their own beds and have a good night of sleep. The unbelievers have enjoyed the grace of Jesus. It's been a good time for them. But consider the disciples. They were exhausted before they even went across the Sea of Galilee the first time because they'd been on this missionary journey preaching about Jesus, performing miracles in Jesus' name, facing rejection. They accomplished their task and returned to Jesus we saw last week, 
But upon their return, things were so busy, they didn't even have time to eat, Mark chapter 6 says. Then they think they're going to get a break. They're going to get a vacation. They're going to go with Jesus to relax. And instead, they have to do crowd control and work as table waiters for thousands of people. And now Jesus sends them back across the sea later at night into what we're going to see in a minute is a massive, dangerous storm. The disciples have had a really tough day. Now, this might shock us. The unbelievers have it easy. They go to bed with their bellies full. And the believers have it tough. They have to go into the storm. Shouldn't it be the opposite? Shouldn't the believers have it easy and the unbelievers have it hard? No. Because Paul says in Acts 14, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Hardship is part and parcel of being a believer. And why is that? Because we learn many lessons in hardship that we cannot learn anywhere else. Let me give you several lessons we can learn from hardship. Number one, hardship reminds us this world is not our home. So we cannot put our ultimate hopes in the stuff of this world. We must set our hopes on Christ in the new creation. Number two, hardship sometimes functions as a test of our faith. And it reveals the reality and depth of our faith or the lack of our faith. Number three, hardship sometimes teaches us that we need to make a course correction when our hardship entails consequences that we face because of our sin against God. Number four, hardship often develops within us the spiritual virtue of perseverance, or James 1 calls it steadfastness, and that's a critical part of our sanctification. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, knowing that the, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Testing is helpful and important. Finally, hardship makes us more like Jesus, who faced so much hardship in his life. So, friends, suffering often accomplishes much that is spiritually good for us. And we're going to see today, that's why Jesus sent the disciples into the storm. And make no mistake, Jesus sent them there intentionally. It wasn't like this was something he didn't know about and just popped up and what a surprise no it was jesus purpose to put the disciples into the boat that they should go into the storm because in the storm they are going to learn some lessons and have some spiritual growth they couldn't get anywhere else and it's the same for us friends hardship refines us and grows us and disciplines us and ultimately is good for us these are good things god purposes for us to develop because we are his children and ultimately, this is why the unbelievers don't get the storm and the believers do. Because the unbelievers aren't God's children, but the believers are. Listen to Hebrews 12. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to all who have been trained by it. We often think of God's discipline as being sort of a spanking for our sin. 
And it's true that sometimes God's discipline is corrective. But broadly speaking, this word discipline doesn't just mean that God's dropping the boom on us because of our sin. In Greek, this word refers to child rearing or training. You know, a little kid might not like to be told no. He may not like to learn hard lessons that he needs to learn, but he's still got to learn them. So too are the lessons that we learn in the hard things that we face. They are a part of our training. And we face these things not because God has abandoned us and not because we don't belong to Him. No, we face hard times and learn painful lessons that we need for maturity precisely because we are God's sons and daughters if we are believers. We receive these lessons to grow us in holiness and to train us to produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So we need to know sometimes God sends His children into the storm. But while hardship can produce a positive result in our lives, that doesn't mean that it's fun. And that's our second point. The storm is terrible and difficult. Look at verse 23. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. So having sent everybody else away, Jesus goes to a mountain and he prays in seclusion. Now what is Jesus praying for here? Well, we're not told. Perhaps he was giving thanks for the miracles of the day. Probably he was asking for rest and strength because he was very tired. But I think he also must have been praying for his friends who were about to undergo a very difficult ordeal, which we see beginning in verse 24. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he, Jesus, came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. The disciples had gotten into the boat shortly after dinner. They should have arrived at their destination in like two or three hours. But it's now the fourth watch of the night. It's sometime after 3 a.m. And yet they're still a long way from the shore. Why? Well, the, the text describes some terrible circumstances. Strong winds and violent waves. What's going on here? Well, John 6 tells us the events of that day took place near the Passover, which was in the springtime. And that's the rainy season in Galilee. So a storm has arisen on this sea. And this storm is producing these powerful winds that are preventing the disciples from going where they want to go. But more than that, the language that this boat was beaten by waves is interesting. Because in Greek, that verb beaten means tormented. And back in chapter 8, Matthew uses this verb twice to speak of the violence caused by demons. So it's quite possible that there is a supernatural element to this storm. That this is a demonic attack upon the disciples while the master is apart from them. And the disciples are rocked by this storm. They have been battling this weather for, for the whole night. And remember, they were already tired before this even started. They would have been even more exhausted now. In fact, John 6 says they're rowing in the middle of this terrible storm, rowing for hours in an uncovered boat as water pours in over the side and they're being tossed and turned around. It's awful. But in the middle of their distress, who comes to them? Jesus Walking on the water. Now you know the whole time they were sitting in that boat, the disciples were thinking, where's Jesus? Why didn't he come with us? If he had been here, he could have stilled this storm and we wouldn't be in this mess. After all, back in chapter 8, Jesus had stilled a very powerful storm. But now that Jesus approaches, 
Are the disciples glad? No. Because in the darkness of the night and the turbulence of this storm, they are unable to see Jesus clearly. So when he approaches, he seems to be the scariest part of this whole scene. Imagine it. You're in this boat. You're being thrown all over the place. And you look out and you see something moving towards you on the water. It would be very concerning to you. Especially, remember, at least four of these disciples were fishermen. They worked this sea. They knew this was unusual. They knew this was supernatural. And immediately, they assume the worst. They think this is some kind of a spiritual apparition. The ESV says like a ghost. Now, maybe they thought it was a demon. You know, they'd seen Jesus exorcise many demons. Whatever it was, they were in terror. They were already in a vulnerable situation, and now a spirit comes to, to torment them? This seems like the end for them, surely. But in fact, the figure they see is not a ghost, and it's not a demon. It's Jesus who's coming to help. And I think this is the most unsettling part of this whole story. That in the middle of all this bad stuff that's happening to the disciples, the moment that terrifies them the most is when Jesus arrives. Because they don't expect he's going to show up, and when he does, they can't recognize it. And friends, this can happen to us too. It can be easy when we are in the middle of hardship to stop expecting Jesus to help us. Because hardship has a way of diverting our attention. It makes us focus on how bad things seem to be, and it makes us scramble to find a solution to our problems. And in the process, it gets us to forget what we ought to know and to forget what we ought to be thinking about, which is that we have a loving God who is near, who is all-powerful, and who we can cast our cares upon. In the same way, hardship can blind us to the intervention of Jesus because we stop looking at our problem with the eyes of faith. And we start looking at them with pessimism. We expect things to get worse to the point that when Jesus does intervene and does begin to change our circumstances, we can mistake what he's doing as a worsening of our hardship. Friends, we've got to resist these traps. But it's hard to resist them because hardship is real and terrible. Many of us know this firsthand. Many of us here have lost a loved one recently, or we've experienced the dissolution of our family at some time in the past, or we're going through a health crisis, or a financial crisis, or a spiritual crisis. Friends, pain is real, and we've got to acknowledge that pain is real, because many cults and philosophies downplay or deny the reality of pain and suffering. But the Bible tells us the truth. It tells us that pain is real. Jesus suffered pain on the cross for us. Most of the key figures in the Bible suffered pain at some point in their life. And the Bible tells us that we, likewise, if we are believers, should expect to suffer. There's a reason Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Hardship is real. And it can, if we're not careful, take over our lives because it's so painful. And so what we need to do when we face terrible hardship is we've got to remember that Jesus loves his people. Right? The disciples are on the boat saying, where's Jesus? But all along, Jesus has been praying for them. And now Jesus is drawing near to them. And it's the same for us when we're in hardship. Friends, we need to remember in the darkest moments of our lives that Jesus has sworn he will never leave us or forsake us. 
Now, this book ends with the promise that he is with us always, even to the end of the age. We need to remember that Jesus is praying for us. Hebrews 7.25 says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is praying for us. So is the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't know how to pray for what we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. We've got to remember also the Lord is near to us. Psalm 34, 17 says, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. When we encounter hardship, we've got to remember these truths. Do we know that Jesus is near us when we hurt? Do we expect him to help us in our season of pain? Or do we let the storms trick us into thinking that he has abandoned us or that we forget that he's even there? Friends, the storm is real, and so is the pain that it causes. But even more real than the storm is the love of Jesus for us. And that's what we see in our third point, which is that it's in the storm that Jesus reveals his power and love. Look at verse 27. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus sees his friends screaming in terror, and he immediately speaks words of comfort and encouragement to the disciples. And the way he's going to comfort them the most is he's going to show them who he truly is. Now, in verse 27, Jesus says three things. And these are the three things the disciples most needed to hear in their difficult moment. And these are the three things we need to hear most when we're going through hardship too. First, Jesus says, take heart, or we could translate this, have courage. The verb means to be resolute in the face of adverse circumstances. Don't wilt in hardship. Be strong. Second, Jesus says, don't be afraid. You know, fear is a normal response to hard times. But Jesus says, look beyond fear and have faith. We've got to trust that he is near, that he loves us, that he's at work in our lives, and that he can help us. Now, I want you to understand, when I talk about Jesus helping us, I want us to understand that means that he may choose to immediately deliver us from a crisis, but he may not. Sometimes believers encounter hardships that last for a long time. Sometimes believers encounter hardships that last for a lifetime. And when we encounter those kind of storms, we need to know that Jesus is still with us and he supplies to us the spiritual resources that we need to endure that crisis. But friends, how can we have courage and faith when things around us seem so bad? And the reason is because of the third thing that Jesus says here. It is I. Now, that would be a huge encouragement for the disciples, right? They think he's some kind of an apparition. And Jesus says, no, no, guys, it's me. And they had to know, okay, things are going to get better now. Jesus is here. Everything's going to be okay. But these words reveal something even more here. Because in Greek, Jesus says here, ego a me. And while ego a me can mean it is I, more literally you would translate these words, I am. And of course in the Old Testament in Exodus 3, when God identifies himself to Moses, God says that his name is I am. And friends, this most of all is why we can have courage and faith in hard times. Because Jesus is God. 
Jesus has all power at his command. And Jesus says at the end of this book, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus has authority over life and death, over the material and spiritual realms, and everything in between. And friends, not only does Jesus have all power, but he loves his people. He died for us. And so we can take heart because Jesus, our Savior, is also God. But even more importantly here, Jesus doesn't just say that he's God. He proves it, and he proves it by walking on the water. Now, you might say, well, how does Jesus walking on water prove that he's God? The answer is that in the Old Testament, we're told that only God walks on the water. In Job 9.8, we're told that Yahweh alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Isaiah 43.16, thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. Psalm 77.19, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. And now here we see Jesus doing what the Old Testament says only God can do. Trampling on the waves, walking on the water. See, Jesus doesn't just claim to be God. Jesus does what only God can do. And so we can and must believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. And this should give us courage. Moses' last words were like this in Deuteronomy 31. Be strong and courageous. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Jesus says the same thing at the end of this book. He's with us. He'll be with us always. Moreover, we don't have to be ruled by fear. Jesus said back in chapter 6 of this book, Do not be anxious about your life. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Matthew 10 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. But Jesus loves us. The Father loves us. God is looking after us to the degree that he's keeping count on how many hairs are on our head. He knows what we're up against, and he's with us in our fight. So Jesus says, don't be afraid. Trust. Trust in me. Trust in the sovereignty and the love of the Father. And friends, that should give us peace and confidence today and hope for tomorrow. But friends, that's only going to happen if we meet hardship by looking to Jesus. If we do not allow ourselves to become overwhelmed or distracted by the intensity of the circumstances that beset us. And this is our fourth point, which is that the storm can only be weathered by us fixing our eyes upon Jesus rather than our circumstances. As the disciples see this astonishing sight, Jesus is walking on water. Suddenly, Peter pipes up. Look at verse 28. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. Now, Peter's request is astonishing, right? I mean, okay, we can get that Jesus is walking on the water. He's God. But Peter walking on the water? I mean, what happens if we try to walk on the water, right? 
better hold our breath. And Peter was a fisherman. He understood this principle. But Peter sees Jesus out there and reasons, if Jesus has power to do this, then he has the power to let me do it too. Peter wants to imitate his Lord. And that's a great thing. That's something the New Testament tells us to do all the time. Imitate Jesus. And so here he makes this audacious request to imitate Jesus' miracle. And his request shows he's got some great faith in Jesus. And Jesus honors his request. And Jesus says, get out of the boat and walk to me. And, and Peter does. He starts to stroll on the waves. And it seems he got pretty close to wherever Jesus was. We don't know how far off Jesus had been standing. But what an amazing experience it must have been. Walking on the water, filled with confidence in Jesus. But then something happens. The circumstances start to get to him. Maybe Peter felt a strong gust of wind. Maybe the ocean spray splashed him in the face. Maybe he felt the waves move under his feet. But whatever it was, Peter took his eyes off Jesus and put them back on his surroundings. The surroundings that had been terrifying him for hours. And immediately he begins to sink. Now, I want us to understand here, the issue is not that, that Peter entirely lacked faith in Jesus. If Peter didn't have any faith in Jesus, he wouldn't have got out of the boat. No, what happened was, in that moment, the circumstances became more real to Peter than the power of Jesus was. He saw the danger of the storm as being more powerful and more real than the reality of Jesus' power. See, friends, when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we realize that He is able and we can breathe easier and have courage and faith despite our circumstances because our problems don't seem nearly as overpowering. But when we look to our circumstances, we begin to perceive things very differently. Suddenly, we see how small we seem and how immense the hardship seems, and we realize that we are unable, and then we will flounder and go under, plunged into anxiety and despair. Friends, we've got to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. The author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 12 too, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The race is long and hard and painful. If we just look to the race, we won't endure. But when we look to Jesus, we see first that Jesus was able to do great things. He won victory over Satan's sin, death, and hell. He won a people for his own possession. He has guaranteed the coming of the new creation. He has accomplished the plan and purpose of God. And he did all of that despite facing the worst hardship imaginable. The humiliation and anguish of the cross. The very wrath of the Father. But Jesus fixed his eyes on the prize. He saw where the path would lead to glory and joy. And he endured. He won the victory. But if Jesus can do that, against very difficult circumstances. And the second thing we can learn is Jesus can help us when we're against far smaller hardships. If Jesus can do all that, what can he do for us? Friends, Jesus will help his people. And our role in this is we've got to stop worrying about our inability and the awfulness of our circumstances. And we need to focus on the fact that Jesus is in control and he has all the help we need. But sometimes we're like Peter. Sometimes we are fearful and cowardly. Sometimes adversity sinks us. 
But even then, Jesus is a faithful and loving friend who quickly delivers. Look at verse 30. But when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. As Peter sinks, he calls out to the Lord. And what love Jesus has. He puts his hand down and grabs him right, right away. And friends, when we falter and sink, and we will all falter and sink at times, all we've got to do is look back to Jesus and cry out. Because he is there to rescue us too. And that's a huge relief, right? Jesus is there for us, not only in our hardships, but also in our failings. Friends, we are weak and frail. As the song says, our strength indeed is small. But Jesus is willing to deliver us. But notice what Jesus says to Peter. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Is that right? Did Peter have little faith? Well, in one sense, he had lots of faith. Because when he saw Jesus on the water, he was willing to climb out of the boat and walk on the waves. None of the other disciples dared to ask that. They lacked the faith that Peter had. You know, if you or I were there, we probably wouldn't have had the same thought that Peter had either, right? Peter had a lot of faith in this scenario in one sense. But in two other senses, Peter really did lack faith. First, his faith was small because it did not endure. It didn't last more than a few seconds, right? It got blown over by a mere gust of wind. And in that moment, when Peter took his eyes off the Lord, his faith failed and his doubt crept in. Now, this word doubt, I think, is really useful to, to look at. It, it gets at the idea of wavering between two ideas. See, Peter knew Jesus was powerful. But in that moment, he began to reason, yeah, but the wind is powerful too. He wasn't just looking at Jesus anymore. He was weighing things out in his mind, which is stronger. And that's when he sank. We do this too, right? We can say in the midst of our troubles, yeah, yeah, Jesus is all powerful and strong and able, but, and it's everything after the but that gets us in trouble. Friends, we've just got to stick to the first part. Jesus is able, and he's where we've got to put our trust. But Peter didn't do that. And that's the first reason why Jesus says, you've got little faith. The second reason why Jesus says, you've got little faith, is because Peter became anxious about his life in that moment. Two other times this word, you have little faith, is used in this book. And both times it's when Jesus is rebuking somebody for being anxious about imminent death. Friends, death is not something that Jesus' people have to fear. Because our lifespans are in Jesus' hands. They are set. And nothing we can do can alter that sovereign decision of God. Now, that doesn't mean we should be dumb and go bungee jumping without a cord or, ask, or you know, act uh, you know, really recklessly. If we do that, we may find that Jesus has determined that our lifespan should be quite short. But the course and the length of our lives are determined and set by Jesus. And beyond that, if we belong to him, he promises to raise us up on the last day. So we don't have to fear death. And Jesus says, if we do, then we are those of little faith. And that's where Peter was here. But despite his little faith, Jesus still pulls Peter out of the water and helps him back into the boat. And Jesus gets into the boat too. And at once, this storm ends. Jesus' purpose for the storm has concluded. The lessons have been learned. The crisis is over. But our passage isn't over because we come now to our last point, which is that Jesus is glorified because of the storm. We might wonder why God lets us experience hard times. The disciples might have wondered why Jesus let them face this storm. And we've suggested many reasons already why 
God would send us into storms to test us or to correct us or to sanctify us. But at the end of the day, we've got to remember this. Ultimately, why God does anything is for his own glory. And indeed, this storm brought Jesus' glory. And that's what we see in verse 33. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Man, the disciples had quite a day. Between the feeding of the 5,000 and this incident, they have seen Jesus perform two amazing miracles. And these two miracles together have been like a watershed moment in their lives. Up to this point, they've been following Jesus, and they've learned some things. They, they know a little bit. In chapter 11, Jesus said the Father had revealed some things to them. In chapter 13, Jesus says that to the disciples had been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. They understood some things about Jesus and what Jesus was doing, but they still didn't see the whole picture. But now they see and understand more about Jesus, and they confess him to be the Son of God. Now, what does that mean? Does this mean the disciples entirely get it? In one moment, do they come to a comprehensive understanding of the Trinity and Christology? I don't think so. No, I think what they grasp here is an even further understanding of the idea that Jesus is unique. Jesus can do what nobody else can do. And that's because Jesus has a unique connection to the Father. Now, this is just one of many light bulbs that's going to go off for them over the coming months and years. We're going to see another such light bulb in chapter 16, when Peter says that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And on that occasion, Jesus will see the disciples have grasped enough that it's now time to reveal more of the picture to them, that he's got to go to Jerusalem and die. But we're not quite there yet. The disciples are getting it to some degree, but not to that big degree they will understand later. And yet, based on what they've learned about Jesus, they're in awe of him, and they worship him now for the first time. Friends, what we need to understand is that when we encounter hardship, God's intention is for us to respond to hardship with faith and courage. And when he delivers us through those hardships, we must respond by giving him the glory that is due his name. Friends, it's right to thank God for his kindness in helping us through the hardships that we face. Maybe that sounds strange to us. Maybe we think, well, I'll be thankful if everything in my life goes the way I want. But if God makes me go through a storm, I'm not going to thank him. If that's our attitude, we wind up being the sorts of people that Satan accused Job of being back in the Old Testament. Somebody whose allegiance to God is bought with a life of ease and comfort. Friends, that's not true faith. No, true faith says with Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Yet will I praise him. Because as we see here, even if we face that kind of hardship, even if we face mortal danger, even if we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's the right attitude to hardship. Seeing that God is with us, that he's helping us, and that he will show us kindness and give us an eternal hope. And when we see that, let us praise and worship him. Now to conclude, today if you're not a believer, I want to say to you, you are standing in the path of a storm from which God will not deliver you. The wrath of God for your sins. Repent 
and cast yourself upon the mercy of Jesus, the God-man who has died for our sins and risen. But if you are a believer, then I hope today you see hardship is a normal experience that we must encounter. And when we face it, we've got to have faith and courage because Jesus is God. He is almighty. He loves us and he is able to help us and deliver us through any storm that we face. But we've got to fix our eyes on Jesus and not allow our circumstances to distract us and cause us to plunge into anxiety and despair. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Let those be more than words. Let that be our posture towards this God, that he is our defense, our deliverer, that he is near and that he is at work. Let us look to him trusting in his good purposes and, that, and knowing that he will accomplish every good thing that he has decreed for each of us and for all of us. Psalm 30 verse 5 says, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning.